This episode is brought to you by freedadcourse.com. You are always one conversation away from changing your life, and the power of hello is something that I subscribe to every single day, and I'm always saying hello to new people everywhere I go. Increasing your opportunity, increasing your connection, and getting access to the solutions to the problems that you are facing, whether you're on active duty or just beginning your veteran transition or even transitioning out for 20 years. On the other side of hello are the solutions that you're looking for. Again, head on over to freedadcourse.com. Get your five-episode audio course to create more connection, create more friendships, and get back to living the life that you're trying to design. Dory 1, this is Fire Team Delta. Dad's coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. Welcome back to episode number 40. This week, we have Dr. Seth Castle. Dr. Seth Castle joined the Army Reserve in 1998 and attended Fort Hayes State University. He graduated in 2005 with a bachelor's in organizational leadership and went on to earn his doctorate in education at Baker University in 2017. Seth is a retired U.S. Army First Sergeant who, during his 16-year career, served two combat tours in the Middle East in both Afghanistan and Iraq. His military honors include the Bronze Star from his service in Iraq in addition to having his uniform permanently displayed in the 95th Entry Museum in Fort Still, Oklahoma. He is the author of the children's book, Why is Dad So Mad? and Why is Mom So Mad? Both which address how military families can cope with post-traumatic stress disorder. In 2016, Castle was selected as the Tillman Scholar by the Pat Tillman Foundation and received Fort Hayes State University's Young Alumni Achievement Award. Seth Castle and his wife, Julia, have two daughters, Reagan and Kennedy, and reside in Waukini, Kansas. And this episode is going to, it just hit home for me. We both start crying in this episode. And without further ado, I want to get you right into it and get this going for you. Welcome to the show, Seth. Hey, thanks so much. It is absolutely crazy of how I found you that uh, a Google search brought you in my life. And it was like you were meant to be in my life being a writing a children's book. Uh, go ahead a little bit, unpack about what your family looks like right now and maybe a little bit behind that children's book to start off. Okay. So uh, I guess if you look at my family right now, I have a wife of 14 years named Julia and uh, Julia and I met in the army. Actually, I proposed to her on top of a bunker in Iraq in 2003. Uh, it's not Paris, but it's, <laughs> it works for us. Um, you know, we came home from Iraq. We were, uh, we were actually deployed in 2002 together to Qatar, and I went forward to Afghanistan, and she uh, um, she stayed in Qatar, and then we came home for about four months, and we both got deployed uh, again in January '03 for the initial invasion, um, and we were there till April '04, and obviously we got engaged during that time. Uh, came home, moved in together, and um, we'll just... I'll, I'll skip over a lot of the stuff. We ended up having a daughter in 2009 and another daughter in uh, in 2013. So now I have a 10-year-old and 6-year-old daughter who are in 5th and 5th grade and 1st grade. And man, they uh, keep us busy and it's awesome. Uh, but as you're well aware, being a parent uh, comes with its set of challenges no matter what. 
and uh, sometimes being a veteran parent uh, can make you have maybe another layer of challenges. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that's that's really the impetus for the book. Um, you know, like I said, we came home in April of 2004. At that point in life, you know, we deployed our first time. I was 20. I turned 21 in Afghanistan. I turned 22 in Iraq, and I came home like two weeks before I turned 23. So I almost had three straight birthdays overseas. Um, so, you know, I was 23. My wife was 25. We we're still pretty young. Neither one of us had finished college. And, uh, you know, we, we moved in together. We came home because, like I said, you know, we got engaged. And we came home. We moved into this lavish trailer house um, because that's just kind of where we were in life. Um, you know, we were finishing college and I look back on that and I call that our trailer house from hell because uh, it was some rough times in that. Um, you know, we were both, like I said, we'd been gone for, uh, for about two years. We had been deployed almost consistently. And so we both had a lot to unpack after that amount of time. And hey, by the way, you're engaged now and you're living with this person that you've really only known in the desert um, in a mili- in like a military working context and deployment context, which is wildly yeah. different than civilian life. And so on top of all that, you know, we, we both had our issues that we were kind of dealing with from the last few years. And, uh, and it was a struggle, you know, and I, I still remember today, like, where I was standing in that trailer house, the first time I felt it, like that, that I felt what I refer to in the book is like the fire inside my chest. Um, like we're having one of like a thousand fights that we had during that time frame. I remember I was standing in our kitchen, I felt it in my chest and, and I didn't know what it was. I just, I knew that it was something different and something I'd never felt before. And, you know, I would through through education, through counseling, you know, like I would come to figure out, you know, this is, this is what PTSD is for me. And that feeling is something that would, it would almost ruin my life at at one point. It would dramatically shift the trajectory of where I was going and the things I was doing. Um, You know, we, we made it through though. We're fortunate enough. We made it through. And at that point in life, it was just us, you know, it was just me and her. We didn't have kids yet. And we definitely had our struggles, but we made it. And um, fast forward to like 2009, I look at that as a big marker in my life. And uh, this is my oldest daughter was born and she was born with uh, a rare vascular disorder. And, you know, like no one really knew anything about it. And, you know, when she's born, they're like, well, maybe she'll live two weeks. We don't know. Like we don't know anything about it. And like now she's, and fine right but like when you're a first-time parent that's terrifying and um you know like when you become a parent you have a whole additional layer of stress that you never even knew existed right like now you know why your parents were crazy when you're growing up right (laughs) um but so and that's you know that's kind of the thing with with ptsd is that Life is the ultimate trigger, right? Because you're experiencing the same things everyone else is experiencing. Life doesn't stop. Right. It it just doesn't stop, right? It just, it kind of affects your ability to deal with that in in a sound way. And so, like, just the the stress of becoming a parent, the stress of the unknown with what we were going through like that, uh, that definitely took a toll on both my wife and I, as it would with anybody who's going through that, right? And um, 
you know, in 2011, uh, my best friend was killed in Afghanistan. You know, we'd done two tours together. And uh, after our second tour, our careers kind of went different ways. I, I went, I became a drill sergeant. He became a Chinook pilot. And uh, he was flying a special operations mission. And his uh, Chinook was shot down by enemy fire. It was actually his largest loss of life. Um, in the in the the conflict to date still if you remember hearing about the chinook full of like 31 navy seals like he was the pilot and i tell you like that was a real real tipping point for me when uh when brian was killed and uh <clears throat> i'm sorry i thought i was going to get through it <laughs> you know, um no problem but uh um and, and i look at it as things started probably i started to lose control a little more after that happened um, you know, it's like all the typical, like downward spiral behaviors, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I was playing into that. I was, I was drinking way too much. I remember I had a job that I didn't particularly like, and I, my commute was an hour and 20 minutes and, um, I was miserable at work. I remember like I got beer one day before I left work and I came home, you know, I drank all the way home. And I remember I was standing in our kitchen when my wife got home from work and, and she told, like, she knew that I was, uh, I was pretty lit up and she's like, you know, you better not become an alcoholic because your daughter deserves better. And like that was, you know, talk about a, a kick in the gut, right? Mm-hmm. Like a reality check. Like that was a very impactful day for me. Um, you know, it, it was around that time that, uh, I was at a, a party with a friend and this guy, he was my mentor in the army. He was my squad leader from the time I was a private. Uh, we went through both deployments together. Um, and he's the one that like I credit to, uh, to teach me how to be an NCO, uh, you know, something I have tremendous respect for and, uh, this was a number of years after deployments, you know, and um, I had done two deployments. He had ended up doing a couple more after that as, as had some of my other friends. And, uh, you know, I just, I, as with, with alcohol, when you put that in the mix, I had a bad night as I suppose that happens to, to people when you, you put something as, vol- as volatile as alcohol into the mix. And, and he was there and we ended up talking all night. And, you know, and he told me, it's like, you know, um, after, you know, after our third deployment, he's like, Luke, one of my other buddies and him, like we had to go start seeing someone. And it's like, you know, like that kind of made it okay for me because it was someone that I respected so much. Like it wasn't just like, Hey, you're not man enough to, to deal with yeah. this junk. You know, like, it's like this guy that was like everything that I considered to be the standard was he was, was asking going for help and, and seeking help. And, um, and, and that kind of made it okay for me you know, and he gave so, you permission. Yeah. It's like, like, I, I shouldn't need that. Right. I'm a grown up, but, uh, I, I guess I did at, at some point. And so, um, I ended up going to, we lived in Wichita, Kansas, which is a, a large metropolitan area. Um, I ended up going to what are, what's called a vet center and it's like an outreach clinic for the VA. There's something the VA actually does very well. You can just straight up like walk in. You don't have to be a part of the VA health system and all that bureaucracy. Like you can just walk in and get the help you need. And I ended up going there a lot for like six months and, uh, and working through a lot of things. And it really, really helped me. And I'll tell you like that first 
time to go. I mean, even though like, you know, it was okay now because my friend had told me that he's going like, that was the hardest step of the whole journey. It was just like taking that first step. Yeah, man. Just like sitting in my truck in that parking lot. Like, are you really going to go do this? And, um, but I'll tell you like every piece of my life today is better because I took that step. And I just, I learned so much about myself and how to recognize kind of what's going on. But at the same time, I don't want to make it sound like I've got this all figured out now, you know, today, absolutely not. Um, I still don't always end up being the person I want to be. And that's kind of a, a crappy, bitter pill to swallow. Um, but I'm, I'm better now. And if I'm really honest with you, you know, I've done these interviews enough that like, I kind of have my spiel and I talk about, you know, mental health's important, take care of yourself. And like, I, I honest to God, I believe all that. And it's been like six years since I went and talked to someone. And if I'm honest, like I'm doing myself and my family a disservice. And it's still like, it's honestly almost like I have to go take that first step again because it's, it's been so long. So it's not something that's like, oh man, I was struggling and then I went and got help and now everything's great and my life's awesome now. Like that's not, it's, this is a continual process. It's going to be with me forever that I'm going to have to be very purposeful in managing it. Um, I suppose if, uh, if I look at the book, you know, I wrote the book in, I wrote the book in probably 2014. Uh, it came out in 2015. I had a really rotten day at work and I came home and I wrote it in like 30 minutes, illustration notes, and I just filed it away. Um, never to be seen again. And I guess I should back up. I, I had looked for a book because I was like, who I am today like post-war me is all my kids know about me. You know, like I was, like I said, I was in my early twenties when I was deployed and fast forward you know, in my late twenties when my kids are born. And so I wanted a way to explain this to them. I wanted a way to educate them on like, this isn't your fault. I'm, I don't always handle things the right way, but I don't want you to think that this is your fault. And my God, I love you so much, you know? Um, I looked for something to communicate to that to them and I, I came up pretty shorthanded. And so I had this idea of a book. Maybe I'll do this sometime. I don't know. Right. And so, like I said, I had a bad day at work, came home, shelled the book out, filed it away on my computer, never to be seen again. Um, I have a good friend that, you know, we graduated high school together. We failed out of college together. We joined the army together. <laughs> we deployed together. And uh, at this point in life, you know, he's got his act together. He's already done with his PhD and he had just published his book on his dissertation research. And he's one of those friends, you know, just kind of needles at you to like be better and like do this, take this step. Um, and so he started really getting after me to take the steps to make this happen. And, um, and so I did, you know, I don't know anything about publishing a book. So uh, I knew I needed someone to draw pictures because it was going to, you know, I had this idea in my head and um, I work at a university. So I went to the department of art and design and I showed my manuscript to the department chair. I was like, do you have any students that you think uh, would be a good fit for that? And he's like, yeah, I've got someone. And like a week later, a student came up to my office 
and I showed her my manuscript, told her what I was talking about, and I was like, you know, with, with this book, I want the characters to be animals. I don't want them to be people because I didn't want it to be about like a white family or a black family because, you know, like soldiers, we're, we're all the same, right? We come yep. from everywhere. So kind of like the little critter books from Mercer Mayer, you know, it's just like yep. about a kid and parents, right? There, there's nothing like everyone, every family can relate to that book. And that's kind of what I wanted. I was like, I want something strong, like a family of eagles. And about a week later, she sent me a character ideation of this family alliance. And I loved it. And like away we went. And she introduced me to someone who's a book designer. And they put the book together. Uh, I funded this thing, like to pay for the illustrator and pay my designer. Um, I just, I paid for it out of my savings. And I wanted to try to recoup that. And I wanted to try to do a second book. So I turned to Kickstarter. And um, through my Kickstarter campaign, uh, it became a Kickstarter staff pick. And then a producer at NBC Nightly News saw it. And like that just started this giant snowball effect. I was on NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. And um, like everything kind of went crazy after that. Um, what was cool about the Kickstarter campaign is it was only like for $3,000. And that thing funded in 24 hours. And less than half of that money was like from my network, right? Mom and grandma are going to kick in. Of course they are, right? But like that was less than half the money. I ended up raising $6,000, which was enough for me to do my second book. Um, so that, that was pretty cool. You know, we ended up, we have Why Is Dad So Mad, which is a resource for military families whose dad struggles with PTSD. Um, you know, I told you I'd look for books and I didn't really find anything. Uh, there's one or there's there are some resources out there, but they're all for men. There's like nothing, and I mean nothing out there for women veterans, for moms who are struggling with PTSD. So uh, I worked with my wife, and we put together a book for moms called "Why Is Mom So Mad?" And so now we have uh, one for dual military families or any families where the mom served, and she has her struggles. Um, you know, we wanted to put something together for everyone. Did your wife write that other book, or is that uh, like a co-author? Yeah, so we, we co-authored it together. So uh, the idea was to realistically tell something from a woman's point of view because they experience things differently than we do. And, um, you know, it's the same principle as as the first book is with uh, she had uh, a lot more say on like illustrations and stuff like that, because, you know, the children's book, there's not that many words. Right. Like a lot is told mm -hmm. through that through the illustration process. So she consulted on, on both of those pretty heavily. I want to rewind back a little bit. There's a lot to rewind there. You did an amazing job unpacking your pretty much your life there. There was one I've never heard it described and I didn't go to war. So a lot of this description is new to me. Go ahead and unpack a little bit what that fire inside your chest was about. Okay. So that is um, like when I experience anger that's a physical feeling that i get in my chest and if i don't get in front of it it grows to a point that it sounds like such a cop-out to say this but like like it it controls me to a point that that i can't reason and like out of control fire almost and like a fire. yeah it, it is and i don't know i wish i had uh, more self-control or a, or a better reason than that but I know when I start to feel that, that if I don't get out of the situation that I'm going to be in trouble. So that awareness to that didn't happen probably initially. As you look back on that understanding, 
is there anything that that awareness has helped you unpack further on your PTSD? Like once you started to figure out this fire trigger and this burning in your desire in your chest to to feel angry, what was some of the next steps you did to try to to work through that and put a fire extinguisher to it, or at least keep it manageable? Man, just just managing the situation. And if you feel that it's not going to be something that you can keep your hands wrapped around to remove yourself from the situation, you know, and like I said that I learned a lot when I went through counseling and stuff and just self-awareness is so vitally important to try to manage this and understanding yourself and what your triggers are and, you know, if it's feeling disrespected or feeling attacked or whatever, whatever it is for you, understanding and especially like if you're married, like having a spouse that understands that, I mean, helps a lot. Mm-hmm. When you started to become aware, and I agree, the awareness is is key there. And I, I feel like the, the hardest part to all of this is as a member of the military, they program you to keep your emotions on lockdown. But as you, that fire's burning inside your chest, there's a pile of emotions that your instinct and training as a m- member of the military tells you to suppress. But as you go through counseling, you learn to figure out what those emotions are telling you. And I'm a big believer in that emotions are meant to almost, you, you're meant to sit in them almost. You're meant to feel them. You're meant to understand what their triggers to help you understand what's going on in your life. But everything about the military tells you to keep them suppressed. And maybe that's, is that a little bit related to like that fire where you just weren't allowing yourself to feel anger almost, but then anger was what happened without really being aware of it. Man, I tell you, like, you know, I, I told that story really fast, but I'm talking about from the time I came home, it was 10 years before I went to counseling. Like that's a lot of time of just struggling, not understanding what's going on and just being subject to something that I didn't understand. Um, you know, they, one thing that they had said when I went, went through counseling, like, you know, this is just like, you're programmed for fight or flight. And so now whenever you're under a situation that, that triggers you in any way, like that's where your body goes it is straight to the fight or flight. And that's not needed in Waukini, Kansas, when me and my yeah. wife were having a disagreement about the dishes or whatever stupid thing that married people fight about, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe this is an interesting question. You might have to think about it a little bit. If you could time travel and leave a note on the table for your younger self when you first got out, what would you put on that note? Wow, that's a big one. You only have one piece of paper, one little small like uh, sticky note for, the, for your younger self to find. Hmm. Man, take care of yourself. Like, I'm going to say this with a caveat, right? Like, I'm a huge, huge believer in self-care. I am freaking terrible at it. Even today to this point, you know, I like to think of myself as someone who's pretty self-aware and I can give you all kinds of advice. Doesn't awareness mean- doesn't always fix the problem. I, you can be aware of a lot and <laughs> I equate them to elephants. Like once you become aware, you just get a herd of elephants in your life and you're like, yeah. I, I'm surrounded by a hundred elephants. Now what I do. And then you really have to start figuring out what each elephant is, why it's there. What was I ignoring? What there's a hundred things unpacked with each elephant and you slowly got to get doing. So awareness can almost be 
in itself a curse because being yeah. aware of it then can be overwhelming and you don't know how to take action. And there's one thing, even though not having PTSD, I was very unconfident in my life to step into it. Uh, even the idea of doing this podcast five years ago was, would never even been a fathom. And I realized something that when you're standing still, whether you're aware of it or not, there's still a fog around you. And the only way to get the fog to lift is to start moving and taking action. And it doesn't really matter in any direction. As long as you're moving towards some action in these things that you're aware of, then the fog will start to lift. But when you're standing still, you, that's when you feel lost and that deep down inside that you're just like, I feel alone. I feel like nobody even knows I'm standing here because you're surrounded in a fog. But then literally all you got to do is start moving. And that's when that fog, like what you did, well, you still haven't figured it out. You started moving. Yeah, And just in the little bit that you moved, look what happened. And if you keep moving, imagine what will happen as you keep growing. And But yeah. when you stop, that's when it all kind of recoils back and becomes overwhelming, Absolutely. even if you are aware of it. You know, that's, that's a great analogy because like it's, you can't see the forest from the trees, mm-hmm. right? Like, yes, I can look back and say, that was stupid. Why did you react that way? It's completely uncalled for, right? But uh, that doesn't undo that I yelled at someone for no reason, right? Or, or something like that. And, and when you're in that fog, you can't see. Mm-hmm. And awareness is a tool. It's not a solution. Did you struggle with ego after transitioning? I guess maybe, I don't know if ego would be the right word. I think maybe pride because it was, you know, like, just like you said, like we're kind of taught to not deal with our emotions and stuff. And just if you look at, uh, you know, I think the military's probably come a long ways, but there's still a long ways to go. I mean, it's super yeah. hyper masculine culture, and you need to nut up and you take care of your stuff. And, and that's the unsaid rule, right? And so I, I definitely still had that ingrained in me pretty deep, I think. And that's why I, I look back at, at that night that. Uh, the guy that's my mentor, that like he told me that he had been going to to talk to someone. And it's like it was okay, right? Because he's everything that I aspired to be for most of my career, and and he's doing this, so it must be okay, right? He's a man, and and he still does this, and so that was that was a big piece for me. And there is just so much of our society reinforces that men can't do these things or feel these things. Um, and that makes you feel like you have to try to do it alone and ego and pride. I feel like are the same thing in a little bit, because when I think of ego, I think of trying to position yourself in a way that someone's not going to figure it out. And if you find your personality in a way where you're positioning some personality trait or some posturing that you really are trying to hide something in, in your shadows from someone seeing and, and as you talk to people, you can mentally feel yourself rotating so whatever you're talking about doesn't come into the light Mm -hmm. that you don't want to be found out and i've used ego almost as a flashlight or a compass that that compass will lead you in a way to figure out where your personal growth needs to be done first because wherever you feel like your pride or your ego where you're truly posturing yourself in a way to hide something that's usually the first place to start looking because there's something that needs to be brought into the light. And then like what you've learned when you start talking that when you bring something into light, the freeness that you, the, the permit, the, just the overwhelming lift, lift you feel on your heart, that's no longer there. 
it, it's almost like Superman where you get power from being directly connected with the sun for Superman. <laughs> it's what you got to have almost like I used to start going for walks like three years ago and I would be going for a walk in the morning and the sun would be coming up. I would just feel like a million bucks because I was just feeling that light on my, my soul, my body. And the same thing happens when you start talking about some of this stuff that you just bring that shadow out into light. And, and what you've learned, the more vulnerable you are, the more people are attracted to you. That that yeah. vulnerability is a, a missing piece to our society that nobody actually talks about, but it's the one thing that makes people connected and connects people on a, almost a soul level that you can bond with someone in a way that makes them cry in the first three sentences that you say to them. If you, you arm the right three sentences, um, I was once at a summit and I was telling us my story about five years ago, I didn't have any friends and I was afraid of dying alone and my story of how to make friendships. And I don't consider this a real like vulnerable story anymore. And uh, after I got done, a dad came up to me and he instantly started crying and I didn't have to say anything. I was just giving him a hug. And that moment happened just from me sharing and I didn't have to say a word for him to connect with me. And the same thing happens with you when you start yeah. talking about it. Yeah, you know, and that's, that's part of what spurred me to do the book, right? Is like, I know I'm not the only one, mm. right? I like, I knew that without a question. And I knew there was other people that, that could benefit. Um, and I think when you talk about the posturing piece, like that's, that's pretty deep, man. That's good stuff. Um, I'm a deep thinker. It's a curse and a blessing. I, uh, you know, in my career, like, like I wasn't a, a professional tough guy in the army or anything like that, right? Like I was in logistics. Like we spent, uh, like my Iraq tour was spent running convoys, you know, and like I lived, if you will, on a fob. I mean, we did convoys all the time because it was early in the war and, and that's, we were in a distribution company, but like by all measure, like you're a Marine, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know what, what Marines call it, but like the army calls them like pogues. My person other than grunt, <laughs> right? And so, like, I didn't feel like because I wasn't kicking in the doors that that there's like there's no way that this is what's wrong. But you still feel the need to posture yourself. Oh, Yo, for that, sure. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm almost forty stinking years old. You know, I'm not even. I haven't been in the army in like five years, and I'm still like I, I still kind of feel that way. And talk you about know? the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps has these damn commercials that make people look like that this is how you should be. And I remember telling a friend that I cry and he's like, that's not what Marines do. And I'm like, I hate to burst your bubble, but I'm a big crier and I was a Marine <laughs> and <laughs> trying to posture myself as that Marine that everybody thinks of that. What I spent a lot of my first years trying to do because that's what I felt like I needed to be. And so I didn't posture myself in a way to like, I was posturing myself a way to not be that lonely, emotional guy that wasn't comfortable with crying in front of people. And now I have a podcast. I openly admitted on it. And I remember in Okinawa watching extreme makeover with the door closed because when the bus moved, I ball my eyes out every single time, <laughs> but I had the door closed because I didn't want anybody to walk in and see me Absolutely. crying my eyes out. Now I'm comfortable. <laughs> I wouldn't care, but back then, that wasn't something that you wanted passed around in the platoon that you cried in the bus moved at extreme makeover. Right. <laughs> Yeah, man. Like I know, like I, I went through my career and like I said, I became a drill sergeant, right? So I'm like embedded with all these hardcore combat arms guys. I'm like, these guys are where it's at, right? Like if, if they're dealing with it, like I don't even know what they're dealing with, right? I'm like, 
you need to suck it up guy <laughs> because these guys are going on with their life and they had it much worse than you. Um, but that's the thing, you know, like we're all the same except for like 10 million different variables and it's how you're wired, what you went through, what you came home to, what your support system was like all that kind of plays in like, man, I had everything going for me, right? I got a fiance, I have good parents, I have siblings, I have friends, I have all the stuff going for me and I still made all the wrong decisions and still almost like threw it all away. What kind of community are you surrounded with right now? Um, you know, about seven years ago, we, my, uh, my family and I moved to a small town in Kansas, um, about 2,500 people in my community. We love it. My wife and I both came from different small towns. It's where we wanted to raise our family. Um, probably like most people that are out of the army, I'm pretty far geographically separated from most of my friends that I was in the army with. We, we do our best to stay in touch, but it's, um, you know, it's just not, not yeah, really life, life right? happens and you're not, everybody can be on your mind at the same time. Yeah. And so you know, we, we, we kind of lose touch. We get to together maybe once a year or something. It's awesome, right? You, you pick back up right where you left off and mm -hmm. that support network's always there. But like, I know for a fact, like for a fact that different people in that group, like have been horribly struggling myself, myself included. And like, I never reach out for help still, mm -hmm. you know, like I had, uh, I had a buddy that went through a divorce and like, that was enough that, that he reached out and needed someone. And, um, but like, that's the only time that any of us have ever reached out for help. Like I've been horrible at the, you know, at the bottom of the barrel and still wouldn't reach out. Yes. So, you know, One uh, thing that uh, got me out of my friend crisis was, um, I'm not exactly sure who gifted me this advice, but I've used it in like multiple areas of my life. But someone said, if you want a result in your life, you've never had, then you need to start doing things that you've never done. And I've never been a man with great friends. I've maybe had one or two that were quality of friendships. And I was like, okay, well, what's something I've never done? Well, I'm horrible at talking to people. Every person I talk to is a high school girl that was going to reject me and tell <laughs> me that I don't want to talk to you because I don't like you. And I was just afraid to say hello. And then eventually I reached that point. I was like, you know what? If I want a result I've never had and need to start doing something, okay, let's talk to people. And my whole journey, I can pivotly say that I am here podcasting because four years ago I started talking to stranger at the park and essentially these strangers were nothing more than dads playing with their kids. Mm -hmm. That moment of just practicing talking to dads at the park literally pivoted my life to create a community in a way that allowed me to be confident enough to talk to people randomly on the internet that I've never met before in a podcast. <laughs> and, but, but I, that safe place, cause a dad is, you have very common things. And my favorite question was always how old are your kids? And that was the gateway question. And either they answered it and kept talking or they answered it and did their own thing. And what I found very quickly is they wanted to talk just as much as I did. They were just waiting for one of us to go first. And that now I'm a hooked. Now I'm addicted to it. I talk to strangers all the time. Um, it's almost like a, it is an addiction because the airport grocery stores, pretty much anywhere I'm going, I'm trying to randomly talk to people. Um, but that community is what I think uh, what we suck at as veterans is creating it on the other side because what I've learned looking back is that for 3000 years, men survived in the form of tribes in some shape or fashion. And in the last 100 years, we thought we could do it alone, whether you're a civilian or veteran. Mm -hmm. And there's just too much that life gives you to try to carry your, yeah. the, the weight on your own. And you need that tribe to share the load. And 
that's community is one of those things that I feel, even if you start talking about it, you still need community because the feelings don't stop. They continue and you need that support structure to keep sharing the load with each other because some people are going to be at a high one day another person will be at the low and it's going to switch. And that's what you need in the community. Yeah, man. You know, like I said, we're in a small town, pretty much geographically separated from like all our military friends, but like through parenting, like I've got some great friends here and it really makes all the difference in the world, right? Friday nights we're going to go up to the local watering hole and eat fried bologna sandwiches and drink fishbowl beers for a dollar fifty and just decompress for the week while our kids play video games. And like, that's awesome. Mm, those are key that, cause if you don't have that, if you don't have friends, you don't have your marriage, you don't have your career. These are the parts of the wheel that start breaking. And when those start breaking, you literally fall in a pit that you don't see a way out of. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a community to throw you a rope when you need it, that's when you can take your own life. And that's when the voice inside your head says that your family is better without you. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's for sure. I want to circle back. You, you talked about tribe. I just want to, I want to throw it out to you and any listeners, the book by Sebastian Younger tribe. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's a real quick read. It is fantastic. And it talks about a lot about why people struggle so much when they came home and it's because of their missing the tribe piece. He goes about, you know, talks a lot about native Americans and they have full ceremonies and this giant process for their warriors after they come home from war and like for for us it's just like okay here's Donuts and coffee yeah go, <laughs> go have a nice life <laughs> thanks for your service <laughs> but yeah. you know um we don't have that and that's a large part of what we miss and i can imagine when you went through that 10-year spat without dealing with it community was probably the last thing you wanted to even think about yeah i mean i came became super antisocial, you know and like when you're younger, you like to go to parties and do that stuff. And like, I was 24, I came home, like I, you couldn't pay me to go be in a giant room with a bunch of strangers. You and know, you, just, But I, you need to talk to people to cancel. The moment you say something stupid or crazy, your brain cancels it out and says, oh, that was something stupid and crazy. But if you don't ever get those thoughts out, they eventually come to the conclusion that your family is better without you. Like yeah. there's no invalidation of that word. Like I feel like once you tell your brain to speak, that word, then like you can hear it and you're like, well, that was the dumbest thing I've ever said ever. But if you don't ever <laughs> say it with your lips, you don't, you just start believing whatever your thoughts are. And we aren't made up of our thoughts. You can cut our body in half and you'll never really tell how you're thinking. It doesn't determine anything about us, but we let it determine how we feel, how we dictate our life. And it just, uh, it, yeah. it becomes an echo inside your head that you just keeps getting louder and louder until you start canceling it out. Yeah, man, that's, that's pretty powerful. And, you know, like for me, something that's helped me a great deal through this is uh, faith has helped me a lot. I was never really into faith. I mean, you know, I grew up in church, I guess. And, um, and, and I grew, I, I came away from it for a large number of years, but that's been some faith and prayer, whatever it is for you, right? Meditation or whatever works like that's something that's been really, really helpful to me. Um, to help me through some rough times. And it's another layer of community. Yeah. As we wrap up, there's one thing I wanted to circle back to. I hope I, I won't be too sensitive with or too unsensitive with it, but your friend that died in the Schnook accident, was he a father? Yeah. And the one thing that I've realized 
on this podcast is, uh, and we're not sure whether this will help or just re-aggravate it, but um, the, when we, we get hung up on the questions of why he died and I lived, especially if it was in the same type battle, those questions haunt us. And what most veterans fail to do is switch from the legacy of focusing on their service to the legacy of their family. And I've heard a other podcaster that was in the army. He essentially put his hand on soldiers that didn't make it home. And he called it his defining moment. And that defining moment was I'm going to create a life that's worthy of the sacrifice. And one of my things that I've been repeating in the podcast quite often is to get through this question or to reflect on the importance it is to be a military veteran dad. And what it means to me is every one of those guys that didn't come home, there's a daughter or son out there that never gets to hug their dad and a dad that never gets to feel what that hug feels like. It's our responsibility to be the best freaking dads we can be because they no longer get to do it. They gave us a gift to be the better dad. And we have to create a legacy with our kids. that is worthy of what that gift they gave us. And as a dad, when I step into that role, those are the things that I'm thinking of. Like there are kids that never get to feel that again. And I do. And you, and as I, I've been paying attention more to families that die as I, the podcast and I'll often read their names in the podcast, just reminding dads that they'd never get to know what their uh, kids love feels like again. And we do, and we need to wake up, come home, work through these things, do what we need to do because there's people out there that never get to feel that. And every day that we're not being dads and coming home, we're leaving so much on the table. Man, that's good. It's, thank you. It's, it's a good reminder. That's good motivation. And in every time I'm getting choked up with you here, so <laughs> lose it. Uh, um, but every time there's someone on the, the news or I, I just, there was one this summer His he was a 21 year old and his wife was six months pregnant. And it's just like, he, that son will never know who his dad is. And he died in Iraq and that happened and it's up to the people still left to, to use everything that the military gave us to create the biggest freaking dent in the universe that the military has ever seen. Because what you've learned and what I've learned, these are all things that our kids can learn and create a much bigger life than we've ever imagined with our tools, with our experiences, with our adventure. We are the best. We have the most strongest toolbox to give our kids the best life possible. And we just need to show up, come home and, and really rock it. And just remember the dads that don't get to come home and create a legacy worthy of that sacrifice and gift they gave us. That's good. Thank you for, for that. And I could tell when you were talking about it, that it was still bothering you. And that's one way that I've really worked through and framed it. And just, it, it, it gives me a lot of power now to just be a better dad, knowing that and framing it that way. In my defining moment, even you think of that question of what your defining moment is, if someone didn't come home, that's your defining moment because they gave you a gift to define your life in a completely different way, in a radical way. And I mean, I, I go back, my defining moment is when I almost went in the Air Force and I went in the Marine Corps instead. And from that moment forward, I've measured every, I mean, I got out of the Marine Corps because I, I felt like I was meant for bigger things and I've kept pushing that. And I'm getting closer and closer to what that is now. But that's all been because I've been reflecting that moment and just continue to go forward. And I mean, my first 10 years, when I first got out, I didn't even want to talk about the Marine Corps. I, if someone figured it out, it'd be fine, but I avoided it. But now, now I'm owning it. Now I'm taking all my skills. Now I'm taking my adventure. I'm taking my experience of living in Okinawa and experiences. That's, and even PTSD, there was um, a guest, I can't think of his name right now, but 
his wife was diagnosed with brain cancer during his transition out. She survived and she's in remission, but we were talking about it that in some ways his PTSD helped him prepare and be a stronger father and husband in that moment because a lot of what PTSD is just accelerated growth in a short amount of time that you may have taken a lifetime to learn. And these are things that we slowly unpack what this growth meant to us and what it did teach us. We can pass it on and reuse those wrenches that it gave us. So Hmm. Um, even PTSD, I've heard it reset, is post-traumatic growth disorder. It's just an accelerated yeah. amount of growth, and you just kind of have to work into those bigger shoes that you have now. Yeah, no, there's there's definitely a lot of growth opportunity there, but it's freaking painful, and you have to be super purposeful, and you have to have a reason to work through it. And if you focus on that, the dad doesn't come in home, that kind of just gives it all purpose and power to really just challenge yourself to figure it out and wake up every day. And remember someone doesn't get to wake up every day and hug their kids like you do. And when you think of the brotherhood that we have, that every time I get a news or an email saying someone died and I see, I spend extra energy to find out if they were a dad, it it just hits me so hard, especially not having this podcast. I'm I'm your, your episode 40. And um, the hardest episode I've done was a Marine that got transitioned out. He fell into the pit and didn't come out of it. And he ended up killing himself with his daughter sleeping 10 feet away in the other room. Oh. And she was three years old. And um, they, she taught me a valuable lesson because I interviewed her, his wife or ex-wife or, or his spouse now. Um, and she's like, the pain doesn't stop. The pain is just passed on. So like it, it doesn't, whatever you're feeling inside, no matter what solution you have, the only way out is through talking community, working through it, because the other choice is the easy way out, but you don't actually stop anything. You really just leave a scar in someone's heart that never goes away. So as we wrap up this interview, is there anything that you want to leave as a parting piece of advice for military veteran dads? If you could wrap all of your wisdom hmm. in one nice gift wrapped package. Mental health is important. It's real. Being a man means swallowing your pride and doing what's best for your family. And so take that first step. Every part of your life will be better because of it. And uh, continue taking steps. The first step isn't enough. Mm, Continue to keep taking steps. That's a good one. I like that. Well, Seth, this was exactly a perfect episode. I've never really had, we've never really gone into the weeds on PTSD. And uh, this was a perfect episode. We'll include the links for the books in the show notes. So if you want to check out those books on Amazon, why daddy is mad um, or the titles. It will include those there. And I can't wait to get this episode out there and start bringing a few dads home because I am positive that this episode will be a nuke on any dad having any of the words PTSD passing through their heads because you were extremely vulnerable and that vulnerability um, is given a gift to other dads to go first and share what they're feeling inside. Thank you so much, man. Thank you for for this opportunity and, and for everything you're doing to serve our community. Well, thank you, Seth, and we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, brother. That's a wrap. And thank you for listening to today's show, and I really hope you enjoyed it. The lifeblood of any new podcast are the reviews. If you haven't reviewed the podcast yet in iTunes, I would really appreciate it, and you will help us get the message out to even more military veteran dads. As John Maxwell says, if there is hope in the future, there is power in the present. Dads, it's time to come home.